Good morning. Um, today, passage that we're going to read is in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 to 25. You can find in the church Bible on page 674 in 674. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verses 1 to 25. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to head to rebook a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the cracking of the thorns under the pot, it is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortions turn a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter, it is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than this? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of no knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done, who can strengthen what he has made crooked. When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God had made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of this, the righteous purge, purging in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be all righteous, neither be all wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be all wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is, one, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists too far, is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turn my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search our wisdom, and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness, and the madness of folly.
Thank you, Akira. Uh, full credit to you for reading in a language that's not your mother's mother tongue. I'm always amazed when our international friends do that for us. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Please uh, keep that passage open. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, Mary has uh, prayed for us, so we'll uh, get straight into looking at these verses together. I imagine most of us would say that our lives could benefit from improvement in one or more areas, perhaps multiple areas. And for those that are looking to better themselves, there is no shortage of help out there. Uh, if you Google, how do I improve my life, it will generate about four billion answers in under a second. Uh, some of you are checking, aren't you? I can see you on your phones. Uh, as of Thursday, the top 10 included 20 easy ways to improve yourself and your life. Seven habits that will improve your life in 2019. Presumably including instructions on how to travel back in time. But this uh, newspaper article is my favorite. 100 ways to slightly improve your life without really trying. <laughs> Doesn't that sound appealing? Uh, the 100 ways include some real gems, like number 17, don't be weird about how to stack the dishwasher. <laughs> or number 30, be polite to rude strangers. It's oddly thrilling. I think number 41 is for me. Buy a plant, think you'll kill it, buy a fake one. <laughs> the problem with all self-improvement articles, techniques, courses, videos, books, and events is, well, the clue is in that term, self-improvement. They all rely on and tend to be focused on me and myself. The Bible has a very different approach as to how lives can be improved and transformed. And it begins by actually looking away from myself to the all-wise God who created me and knows me completely. Recognizing that true wisdom is not actually found within, but in a relationship with him. Now, the NIV editors have given Ecclesiastes 7 the uh, heading Wisdom, which, as far as it goes, is helpful, although in one sense you could give every chapter in this book that very same heading. Ecclesiastes is one of the uh, small collections of books in the Bible which we call wisdom literature. And to be clear, wisdom in the biblical sense is not to do with intelligence or brain power or qualifications. I know people who are super intelligent with many qualifications but who, by their own admission, do not particularly make very good life decisions. And I have friends who are not especially clever or academically minded, who in terms of IQ would be nowhere near that top 2% who can get into Mensa, but oh, do they live wisely before God. That rather like the apostles Peter and John, described in Acts 4 verse 13 as unschooled, ordinary people. But what marks them out is that they've been with Jesus the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his all-wise being. Uh, right at the heart of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, the teacher is very clear on the benefits of wisdom. If you look with me, please, at verse 11, he says, Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Uh, if someone was to leave you their house or their entire fortune, perhaps, in their will, I guess not many of us would say that is a bad thing. Of course, we grieve their loss, but we'd still say that an inheritance is a good thing. But actually, wisdom is even better than an inheritance. Verse 12, wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. 
There is a sense, isn't there, in which having money or owning property gives some protection. So in a cost-of-living crisis, people who are fortunate enough to have savings or investments are to some extent shielded from financial hardship. But, end of verse 12, the advantage of knowledge is this, wisdom preserves those who have it. More literally, wisdom preserves the life of the one who has it. Isn't that fascinating? Money can certainly help you in a crisis, but it cannot actually preserve your life. Wisdom can. Now, by its very nature, wisdom literature in the Bible doesn't always break down into easily discernible sections. It, it can seem to meander around into various topics and sometimes appears to jump jarringly, quite randomly. And I think one of the reasons for that is that our own lives are often like that, aren't they? Sometimes we have seasons where we lurch from one crisis to the next. Other times everything seems to be going really well for us and then suddenly, bam, health scare, redundancy notice, relationship problem. And even in the course of a very ordinary day, you or I will likely have to make a number of wisdom calls. So to some extent, the apparent wandering and sometimes random nature of Ecclesiastes 7, you may have picked that up as we read it through, it reflects the wandering and the apparent randomness of our own lives. On the other hand, this could all just be a preacher's excuse. And I'll admit that I did find it really hard this week to get a handle on a clear structure of these first 25 verses of chapter 7. But that said, with God's help, I do think I've found some strands that I hope will help to orientate us. Four timeless truths for those who would like to live wise lives in a fallen and often very confusing world. So first, verses 1 to 6. The wise person embraces death and suffering. The opening verse starts well enough, doesn't it? And it's easy to get the point. A good name is better than fine perfume. That's to say that having a, a good reputation is better than the most expensive bottle of uh, Chanel, Coco, Mademoiselle, or Eternity Calvin Klein for men. Try telling that to the people who live in my flats. Sometimes the overpowering scent when I get in the lift and I have 12 floors to travel down with it as well. Mind you, judge not lest you be judged. I confess I can sometimes be a bit liberal with my Lacoste too. But the second half of verse 1 is quite a shocker. You almost want to shout out, you can't say that. Especially when there are people who are grieving those that they've lost. The day of death, better than the day of birth. In other words, just as a good reputation is better than a lovely fragrance, so the day you die is better than your birthday. How can that possibly be? Well, remember, this is wisdom literature. And it is actually meant to provoke us. It's meant to make us think. Sometimes we're meant to have that kind of reaction. You can't say that. And as we read on, I think the teacher's point becomes clearer. Verse 2, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. And I think the point surely is this. We gain more wisdom by attending a funeral wake than we ever do from going to a birthday party. Or as Chris Webb put it as we were chatting about Ecclesiastes 7 this week, the coffin is a more effective preacher than the cradle. Nothing wrong with attending a good party, of course, or with feasting. Jesus himself enjoyed good food. He performed his very first miracle at a wedding celebration. But the paradox here is that wisdom for life 
is gained when people gather to mourn somebody's death. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. And I'm sure that many of us here this morning can actually relate to this. We've seen it in our own families. I certainly have. My extended family, we, we tend today, um, aunts and uncles and second cousins twice removed and so on, we, we only tend to ever get together today for either marriages or significant wedding anniversaries or for funerals. The last time uh, we got together was for an aunt, aunt and uncle's uh, 50th wedding anniversary. Great fun. Good party, lots of great food, delicious um, pastries, and all kinds of things we enjoyed throughout the day. It was just a wonderful, wonderful celebration. Brilliant. Saw some relatives I haven't seen for years, including some children that I've never even met with before. And then the last time that we met up before that was for my stepfather's funeral. Very different atmosphere. Tears among adults and children, somber faces, sadness, reminiscing, some soul-searching, People being unusually honest, opening up about things my family never usually talk about. Deeper, more serious questions of life and death. And I think that's the point the teacher is making. That's why funerals in that sense are better. Why a sad face is good for the heart because it makes us face up to the generally taboo fact that we don't like to talk about. The reality that death is the destiny for everyone. And funerals force the living to take this to heart. Second strand for those who want to live wisely, verses 7 to 12, the wise person guards their heart. Now, these verses really do meander. They cover extortion, bribery, patience, pride, provocation, anger, remembering the good old days and complaining about how things were so much better in the past. Uh, Fortunately, churches never do that. And then those verses that we looked at earlier about wisdom being better than an inheritance. And you kind of wonder, is there any thread that holds these various sayings together? Well, this may be a slightly tenuous link, but it strikes me that the heart is key here. Look with me at verse 7. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. Now, this is parallelism, which you often find in poetry and wisdom literature. So in this proverb, extortion and bribe go together, as do fool and corrupts the heart. That's to say, to be a fool is associated with and similar to corruption of the heart. And so it follows that wisdom also begins in the heart, the command and control center of my life. And in verses 8 and 9, things like patience, pride, being quickly provoked, anger, well, they're all matters of the heart too, aren't they? Certainly that's what Jesus teaches in Luke 6, verse 45. A good person brings good things out of the good stored up in their heart, and an evil person brings evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so if I'm easily provoked in my spirit and unleash proud, angry outbursts, well, according to Jesus, that is a sure sign that something is not quite right in my heart. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm not a believer, but if I am a believer who is often being provoked to anger, it certainly means I'm not doing too well at guarding my heart. And I think we could say the same with verse 10. I'm sure most of us have those moments, if we're honest, when we think, why were the old days better than these? And let's not fool ourselves into thinking that it's only older people who say that kind of thing. 
No, no, I've heard teenagers and 20-somethings doing exactly the same. Oh, that last album is not as good as their first album. Oh, season five is not as good as season four. Oh, The Apprentice is not as funny as it used to be. We all do it. Whether it's music, Netflix, fashion, teaching methods, ways of working, church worship, all kinds of things. So I love my gadgets and my apps. Whatever makes communication easier, I love it. But there was a moment this week when the latest ping of WhatsApp did make me think, oh, do we really have to be connected all the time? Always on? I love new Christian songs and hymns, most of them. But there are moments when I think, oh, but we haven't sung that hymn for ages. It's my favorite. I'm not going to say which one it is. Ed is sitting right in front of me. And if next week it's played, you'll think I've abused power or something. I'm sure Ed is stronger than that. He wouldn't just uh, do that. But you know, we all like it, aren't we? And do you notice what the, the teacher doesn't say in verse 10? It doesn't say, don't think these things. Of course we'll think these kinds of things. It's part of our human nature. We all have memories, don't we, which by nature are linked to the way we used to do things or to hymns that we used to sing or to things that we used to enjoy in the past, in the good old days. You remember the good old days when a preacher had 45 minutes at Above Bar Church. Some of you are not convinced those were the good old days. Some of you are, I can see. Now, it's not wrong to think that, even to enjoy and replay those good memories. No, but verse 10, it is not wise to ask such questions. In other words, it's not always wise to speak out what's in our hearts. Some things are better left unsaid because they could unintentionally imply criticism. Or in the church, they may make me or others miss what the Holy Spirit is doing among us today you know Paul shares with the Philippians a very wise principle for life one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead I press on toward the goal to which to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus now I know that has a particular context but I do think it's a wise principle for life forget what is behind strain towards what is ahead. Uh, we've already touched on verses 11 and 12, but again, if we allow money to be more of a shelter than it ought to be, if we forget that wealth and riches and things and property are unable to preserve our lives, well, it's a sure sign again that our hearts are not right, that we've begun to trust in our wealth rather than in Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says this, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Or another translation says, for it is the wellspring of life. But how do we guard our hearts? How do we do it? Well, here are three suggestions, things that I've found personally helpful, not revolutionary, but biblical and effective. First, pray daily. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you seek the Lord with all your heart. Ask him perhaps to pinpoint and search out idols or potential idols in your heart. People or things that are in danger of becoming more important to you than your relationship with the Lord Jesus. Do as Jesus says. Watch and pray so you do not fall into temptation. Father, deliver me today from anything or anyone that might lead me away 
from undivided devotion to you. Second, listen to scripture. Saturate your heart and your mind with God's word. Store it up within you so that just like Jesus, when temptation comes, you have God's word to hand. No time to look up a Bible when you're in the midst of temptation. You want it in your heart. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young person or indeed an older person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Thirdly, spend much time with other believers. It helps us to guard our hearts. We all need that biblical one-anothering that keeps us on track. Build one another up. Spur one another on. Speak the truth to one another in love. Encourage one another and so on. So the wise person embraces death and suffering, guards their heart. Then thirdly, verses 13 to 18, the wise person fears the sovereign God. Uh, Here I feel I'm on firmer ground as this section begins with the command, verse 13, to consider what God has done and then ends in verse 18 with the words, whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. The fear of God coming up again in Ecclesiastes. And so we're to consider God's deeds and to fear him. That is to revere him, remember, and to be in awe of him, not to be terrified of him if we're believers in Jesus. Because that will help us to avoid the extremes of life. And then the verses in between are teaching us, amongst other things, that God is sovereign. That he is in control of all things, at all times, in all places. And that he cannot be manipulated to act according to how I think he ought to behave. And so, end of verse 13... Who can straighten what he has made crooked? I don't know if you've ever tried to straighten a banana. Not sure why anybody would. But it would be folly, wouldn't it? Because God has sovereignly designed bananas to be curved. I know there are some straight ones out there, but generally they're curved. Try and straighten a curved banana, you're likely to end up with banana mush. It's not going to work. Much more seriously, in terms of God's sovereignty, verse 14 When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one could discover anything about their future. How do you react, I wonder, when you go into a a time of trial and testing? Difficult time. I'm sure we've all had them in various different ways. Sometimes I think we can be too quick to blame the devil when things go wrong in our lives or in the church. We say things like, oh, oh, Satan's having a right go at me, or the enemy is at work. And of course, at times, we may well be right. But we need to remember that as Christians, we are not dualists. That is, we don't believe that God and Satan are equally powerful beings fighting it out in the heavenlies for supremacy. No, no, no. That battle has been won. Yes, Satan has power for sure, but he's already been defeated by Jesus on the cross. And anyway, all of his evil activities always under God's sovereign control. First chapter of Job teaches us that very clearly. Now, it is a hard truth. Of course it is. But we need to be clear in our mind as believers in Jesus that Satan can only ever act under authority from our sovereign God. And so as the psalmist says, Psalm 31 verse 15, my times are in your hands, good times and bad times. 
God is always at work, even through the most terrible circumstances, for the ultimate good of those who love him. And what is that ultimate good for which God is working together all things? It's that we be conformed to the image of his Son, made inwardly like Jesus. And brothers and sisters, for all of us at one time or another, that is going to be a painful process because we're so unlike Jesus inwardly. It's going to take time. Sometimes it's going to hurt. And you notice verses 15 to 18 don't shy away from touching on that age-old question of human suffering and the apparent injustice of it all. Why is it, verse 15, we so often hear of the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness? Why is it that decent, godly people who do good sometimes suffer so much while others who have no regard for God, no concern for other people, why is it that they often seem to get away with murder, sometimes quite literally? And we might think, well, perhaps if I try harder to be good and if I fear God more and I grow wiser, perhaps if I do that, God will then bless me and take away all my suffering. But then comes the wisdom of verse 16. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? It's not easy, you see, this wisdom thing. I think the idea there is don't try to be super-righteous or super-wise. Don't pursue extreme righteousness and wisdom. Uh, rather like the Pharisees, you remember, in Jesus' day, who were ultra-diligent in their righteousness, even to the extent of giving God a tenth of their herbs on the kitchen windowsill. That's how righteous they were. Now, the warning sign that you're crossing over into extreme righteousness is when you start to look down on others and judge them in your heart. Hmm, they're not as godly as I am, not as passionate, not as committed. The danger with the super-righteous is that they start to think God owes them, that their extreme righteousness can force God's hand. But no, he's sovereign. He cannot be manipulated like that. But then in case you're tempted to think, well, what's the point of trying to be godly at all then? I mean, I try to do the right thing. God doesn't answer me. Life doesn't get any better. I may as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. No, verse 17, do not be over wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? Now, this is an example of where we need to be really careful with wisdom literature. We cannot read wisdom literature literally as if it's case law or hard and fast rules for life. Do that and you might think, oh, so it's okay then, is it, to have just a little bit of wickedness every so often? Go off and indulge in a bit of sin? Well, no, of course not. The point is that none of us is without sin, completely righteous. But don't say, oh, well, I might as well go all in then. Indulge myself fully and blow the consequences. What the teacher wants us to grasp is that the wise person... The one who, end of verse 18, fears God will avoid all extremes. Remember, to fear God and to love him so much that I don't want to offend him. That's what it means to fear God, to love him so much. I really do not want to do anything that interrupts my relationship with him. It's a key theme of Ecclesiastes. And you know, it is the key to you and me living a steady, well-anchored Christian life that avoids both extreme righteousness and extreme wickedness. The wise person embraces death and suffering, guards their heart, fears the sovereign God, and finally and very briefly, verses 19 to 25, the wise person accepts their limitations. I just love the paradox in these final verses because 
Initially, the potential for the wise person seems limitless. Verse 19, wisdom makes one person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. So you might think, oh, wow, okay, wisdom means unlimited power. I'm going to have some of that. And then you come to verse 23. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I'm determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? See, human wisdom is always going to be limited, not least limited by our sinful human nature. Verse 20, indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. And as an illustration of that universal truth, the teacher highlights the most sinful part of the human body. Do you know what that is? It's the tongue. Verse 21, do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. Never nice, is it, to hear that someone's been talking about me behind my back, or worse still, to actually overhear someone bad-mouthing me, which is why the wise person doesn't pay attention to every word people say and doesn't get caught up in this endless cycle of worrying what people might be saying about me, not least because the wise person is well aware of their own limitations and knows that their own tongue is far from blameless. Verse 22, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. You remember what James says in the New Testament? Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Wow. Wow, powerful words. Strong warning. And yet, wonderfully, there is someone who is completely righteous, not limited at all by sinful human nature, not limited in his wisdom, someone who is full of grace and truth, has never once spoken a wrong word, even when people insulted him. Falsely accused him, ridiculed him, mocked him, humiliated him, and then finally crucified him like a criminal. What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his death on the cross, every careless word you have ever spoken can be forgiven, along with every other way in which you and I have fallen short of the glory of God. And this perfectly wise, sinless man at the end of his famous Sermon on the Mount, he offers this word to the wise. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. Forget self-improvement. Build your life on the wise words of Jesus and put them into practice and you will escape the flames of hell and be taken when you die into the eternal, glorious, majestic presence of the all-wise, perfect King.